0: G'day and welcome to MuseoPunks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson.
1: And I'm Ed Rodley. And together we'll be digging into another important issue driving conversation and practice in the field. Bullying, harassment and the museum sector's response to the Me Too movement.
0: Yeah, since October 2017, when the Me Too hashtag and campaign appeared online following allegations of sexual abuse and rape against film producer Harvey Weinstein, there have been quiet conversations around the museum sector, wondering when members of our own sector and our own communities would be called to account. And while there have been art world revelations and quieter stories that made local waves, in January this year, a bigger story broke through when Robin Pogrebin and Zachary Small published a piece in the New York Times titled, He Left a Museum After Women Complained, His Next Job Was Bigger, which detailed complaints and accusations of bullying and sexual harassment related to Joshua Helmer, the former assistant director for interpretation at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, who then went on to become one of America's youngest museum directors at the Erie Art Museum.
1: The story broke in January and has prompted several waves of action of various kinds at both Erie and the PMA. Helmer himself was forced to resign from the Erie Art Museum on January 12th, but of course the ramifications haven't stopped there. Timothy Rubb, the CEO and director of the PMA, has apologized to staff. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney has called for the PMA to, quote-unquote, strengthen its policies regarding sexual harassment. Two state senators from Pennsylvania have called for greater accountability in the case of suspected sexual misconduct. And the PMA has also announced staff plans to create an anonymous reporting system for sexual harassment and discrimination complaints to be paired with museum-wide training.
0: Hundreds of current and former staff members of the PMA also signed a statement in solidarity with the women who came forward, stating... We acknowledge that this is not an isolated incident unique to one institution, but endemic in the field. Structural change is required to ensure that abusers aren't enabled, employees feel safe reporting abuse, and no one fears retaliation for coming forward. Museums can and should do better.
1: So today, we're going to talk about bullying and harassment in the sector. First, with Robin Pogrebin and Zachary Small, who first broke the Joshua Helmer story, and then with Anne-Marie Quigg, a researcher whose work has focused on bullying in the arts for almost 20 years. And a small word of warning, these conversations will include descriptions of bullying and harassment that might be upsetting for some listeners, so be advised.
0: Robin Pogreben is a reporter on the Culture Desk of the New York Times, where she covers cultural institutions, the art world, architecture, and other topics. She is also the author, with Kate Kelly, of the book The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, An Investigation, published in September 2019.
1: Zachary Small is a reporter who covers stories about art, money, and politics. They write for publications like the New York Times, the Financial Times, and the Nation Magazine. They've previously held positions as investigations editor at The Art Newspaper and senior writer at the art blog Hyperallergic. Robin and Zachary, thank you both for being here today. Uh, before we launch into hashtag Museum Me Too, I was hoping you might tell us each a little bit about how you started in journalism and why writing about culture in particular has become your specific beat. Maybe, Robin, you could start us off.
2: Yes, yeah, so I've actually been at The New York Times for 25 years. Um, as of May will be my 25th anniversary. And I had um, covered initially city news for the paper, and then I covered the media industry for the business section. And I came to culture about 20 years ago where my beat has kind of evolved from theater to architecture to cultural institutions generally, as well as the art world. So it also includes museums, galleries, auction houses, and the art business.
3: Uh, as for me, I'm, uh, as a journalist, I'm art world born and bred. So uh, like many young journalists, I started out as an art critic about five years ago and uh, realized that uh, as much as I like making an argument, I like chasing facts a bit more. Uh, so turn to sort of this investigative style of reporting on art institutions and working conditions in the art world as well as, you know, museum accountability.
1: Cool. It's always good to hear the way that people get from one place to where they wind up.
0: Yeah, and that's a a great focus. I love hearing someone following museum accountability as part of what they're looking at. So on January 10, 2020, you jointly published a piece in the New York Times titled, He Left a Museum After Women Complained. His Next Job Was Bigger. Can you tell us how you first heard about this story and what your research revealed over the course of investigating it? I'm not sure who first encountered it, so whichever one of you encountered this first, maybe kick us off.
3: Sure, so I can answer that. Um, I actually got an anonymous tip for this story after publishing uh, a long expose into the labor conditions and health and safety conditions for art handlers in the industry. Uh, just popped up in my email a couple weeks later and I followed up with a source uh, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art who had previously worked there uh, who said you know this is a big story keep going Uh, so we kind of went from there and I was lucky enough to eventually uh, get Robin in on the fun and uh, we went forward with it from there.
0: That's great. Robin can you sort of unpack a little bit then the process of how how you research something like this. This is such a big story. Uh, it seems like it must have been several months' work.
2: Yeah, these, this kind of a story is difficult. And as, as you're probably aware, the New York Times has done several Me Too stories ever since the Weinstein allegations broke. And in the course of doing them, um, it's important to us to, as these uh, cases come to the fore, there is this... Uh, kind of danger that the public gets numb to these stories. So they have to rise to the level of importance, not just because the person involved is someone of prominence, which in this case, Joshua Helmer was not, but because major institutions are involved, which was the case with the Philadelphia Museum, um, given that that's where he began. And so we felt as if there was This was a kind of a cautionary tale that had resonance uh, not only across the entire museum field, but across every field in terms of an abuse of power, um, allegedly, and also a critical mass of alleged victims that we felt um, this one was worth pursuing. And there definitely is a long process of um, sort of earning the trust of those who have stories to tell as well as the people they told and then fact checking their stories and and making sure that everything is airtight and bulletproof as we put it Um, because these are very serious allegations and we definitely want to make sure that we've um, nailed them down to the best of our capacity before putting them in the paper we understand that we have a responsibility not only to the victims but to the accused to make sure that we've done our homework um, because it has a lot of weight when this kind of report gets published in the New York Times.
0: Yeah I mean speaking of weight there was so much action that followed from this really quickly. There have been several developments in fact since the case broke. Can you run through then some of the big ones and their significance? Zachary maybe you can speak to that.
3: Sure. So probably the biggest development after we published the story. Um, Three days after it was printed, uh, Joshua Helmer uh, was released of his duties at the Erie Art Museum. He no longer works there. Uh, The board at the Erie Art Museum has also released short-term, middle-term, and long-term plans for growth and kind of moving forward. Uh, At the Philadelphia Museum of Art, there's been, you know, still more rumblings. Uh, I I think that the story has really touched a nerve with a lot of staff there in terms of speaking uh, with management and being able to voice concerns uh, historically. So they there was, um, there was an online spreadsheet um, basically of people who had worked at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and people who currently work there saying that they support the women in the article. And currently that has about over 400 signatures and to just give you a sense of scope. The Philadelphia Museum of Art employs about 550 people currently. Wow. As well as
2: um, the Philadelphia mayor called for more stringent harassment, anti-harassment policies at the museum. Um, And so even on the kind of a city level, there's been acknowledgement that this needs redress.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how... How quick things can change when this for people in Philadelphia must have been going on for an enormously long time And that sense of something just being inevitable and a part of the landscape until suddenly it's not is one of, I think, the most uh, hopeful things about the whole story. Um, For the last few years, many people in the sector and probably most other sectors and anywhere, there's money and power involved have expected that there would also be their Me Too moment, and I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard more stories than you want to about this in your professional lives. But if you had to um, pinpoint one reason why this one broke where other ones that are probably out there have stayed below the surface, what what is the thing that made this one rise up to the surface, as it were?
2: Well, one of the things that I would say, if I can speak to that, is having done several of these Me Too stories, in particular, um, the ones involving Richard Meyer, the architect, um, and Peter Martin is the head of New York City Ballet, and Chuck Close, the artist, is when there is just, you know, one woman leads to another woman leads to another woman. So when there is a real pattern of predation, um, it really becomes, uh, it, it feels like a, a responsibility we have to bring these allegations to light. And not just in terms of the the bad actors, which is obviously important, but also because of the institutions that somehow, whether directly or indirectly, sanctioned this behavior, allowed it to continue. Um, And you do see this pattern when when you look more closely at these cases of, um, just the kind of apparatus around these people that looked the other way or uh tried to explain this behavior away, or the uh the power relations complicated the reporting of these uh this misconduct, and so it really becomes important to call out these examples because there is such a ripple effect. Um, within an entire industry. And although we've had Me Too stories in the corporate sphere and to some extent in other uh, cultural realms, we haven't really looked at it at museums, particularly large encyclopedic museums like Philadelphia. And there are, when you speak to these women, I think some real underlying issues around uh, patriarchal culture um, that uh, lends itself to this kind of misconduct. And so I think all of that is now Uh, under review because of one case like this, um, that you can try to begin to understand how something like this could happen and, and be allowed to continue for as long as it did.
0: Yeah, Robin, your recently published book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, An Investigation, you investigated the assault accusations against now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. It seems like there must be similarities in all of these situations in all of these cases regardless of field but it sounds like you were just speaking to some peculiarities within the museum sector around the sort of patriarchal nature of the sector what else stands out as then different in the museum sector from other sectors where you've investigated these kinds of situations what
2: stands out and stood out in in talking to a number of these alleged victims in the case of the joshua homer allegations was that the that the hierarchy of museums is such that those who run it tend to be men and those who are working sort of in the trenches, the rank and file tend to be women. So the entry level positions, the internships, they're often uh, female dominated. And so it is kind of a fertile ground for this kind of behavior to occur. And um, and there's also, you know, arguably a lack of sensitivity on the t- at the top to these issues because men may have experienced it less and therefore just be less aware and acute acutely sensitive to the fact that this is um, that this kind of uh, conduct can occur and so i think it's a wake-up call and i think what you also see is um, the voices of these women kind of now being heard and taken more seriously than they had been perhaps in the past you also see the problem of uh, these non-disclosure agreements which you know while they may protect the alleged victims and their privacy, they also protect the institutions. And so there is this cloak of secrecy that allows this kind of behavior to be perpetuated. In the case of Joshua Helmer, he went on to um, become the director of the Erie Art Museum. So there was not only no comeuppance, but actually um, he kind of rose through the ranks uh, because there was this uh, kind of cloak of silence around his behavior and so Uh, I think all of that now um, really needs to be considered. And uh, unfortunately, we just don't have a clear roadmap forward for how um, things will be changing in the future, but at least um, I think there's a greater awareness that this kind of thing um, goes on and and is unacceptable.
0: Yeah, I think we've been having a lot of conversations in the sector about these systemic issues and the relationships between them. Zachary, I was really interested to hear that this, this tip first came to you following your series on the danger epidemic in art handling, which you'd written for Hyperallergic. What links do you then see between these different facets of the sector, these labour issues, these issues related to harassment and bullying? You must also have some insight into different aspects of this.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: For me, the parallels between those two stories, it really comes back to transparency and accountability. I think for the most part, when you're talking to art workers, whether they're at a museum or a gallery or another institution, the culture is such where they're made to feel like they should be thankful for any job, whether or not it pays minimum wage, whether or not they're getting overtime in the case of the art handlers, many of them weren't, Uh, or in this case, whether or not they're heard and taken seriously. for a lot of these workers and in the art world in general, I know that a lot of the sources I speak to on a daily basis are scared about losing their jobs if they are speaking to a reporter or they've been intimidated um, by an employer not to speak out. And and that really does contribute to this culture of silence, this sort of patrimony that you see in museums that keeps you know important information locked up
1: yeah it's amazing to me that one of the one of the great tools of the current era is the spreadsheet like who who saw that coming uh, but time and again, we see people finding ways to speak out when they feel like they can't do it normally. Robin, do you have something you want to add?
2: Yeah, I would just add that um, you know to Zach's point i i you know having covered for example having covered the the protests at the whitney museum for example about a member of the board there who whose company manufactures tear gas that was allegedly used at the border you suddenly saw um just there's a, a new level of empowerment for those who are lowest on the totem pole so i think that um, is resonant in terms of let's say the labor issues and a lot more organizing of unions and museums and it is in terms of speaking out as they did at the whitney
1: like now is suddenly the time that people just aren't putting up with things that in years past it seems like they would have put up with um, particularly in, in recent weeks now I mean, the philadelphia museum of art the Erie museum is one example but we have mm-hmm. uh we have more to choose from if you want to look at major changes in the way that the stories get responded to um, i'm thinking of the national archives which put up a photograph of the 2017 Women's March, uh, where they had blurred out uh, any of the signs in a a news photograph that were uh, they felt critical of the president or described female genitalia or any other things uh, that that someone at the archives decided was not a good idea to post, and then it was only someone from the uh, the Washington Post coming in and seeing it and saying like, "Hey, look at what these guys have done at the National Archives." Uh, that very quickly translated into uh, both some amount of public shaming, uh, but also action. And this this capacity that journalism has to still shift public sentiment and prompt quick action, um, particularly I think is appealing to many in the sector where museums by nature are kind of slow-moving and conservative. And um, do you have any, any other thoughts on... Why it takes this kind of external visibility to make significant change, Um, especially now with the Internet, where these things could happen, like things like the art museum transparency um, salary spreadsheet, like Mm -hmm. was completely self-generated and sprang out of nowhere, it seems like, and became a major force in no time. But there is still something about talking to a reporter about a thing that needs to be made public.
3: Right. Well, I think that there are sort of two different things at play. I mean, there's many different things, but two major things at play. The first is, you know, listen, we're in an increasingly visual society that's looking at images and image makers for direction. And of course, museums are seen as these great gatekeepers of that information. And, you know, for the past hundred decades or so, have also sort of styled themselves as unbiased uh, presenters of that information and of media. So when that veneer starts to crack a little bit in the case of this Me Too or- article or in the case of Warren Candor's at the Whitney Museum and the sort of political insinuations um, or different sort of dramas in the back you know behind the scenes start to come public that becomes a big issue. I, I think that another part of this too is, of course, uh, and we hear this, you know, from experts in the field and from arts workers as well. Is you know, it's a product of our times right now. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump is in the White House, and I think a lot of art workers, especially in the case of the Whitney Museum, were reacting to policies at the border when they decided to mount, you know, nine weeks of protests at the Whitney Museum uh, yeah. because, of course. Warren Kander's uh, tear gas was seen at the border, as well as many other uh, protests, riots, um, and enforcement areas around the world.
1: Yeah. So um, I'm going to give you both a chance to plug yourselves. Um, If asked the question, should people should museum professionals seek to work with journalists when trying to deal with these kinds of internal challenges? Or are there also other mechanisms that you have come across where people have been able to affect this kind of change as well? Is, is talking to a reporter the only way forward, you think?
3: I mean, I, I can speak for myself and just say my email is in my Twitter bio uh, and, uh, you know, you can reach <laughs> out to me whenever you want. I think yeah, that, yeah. you know, when something, and this is something Robin and I have talked about before, when something gets to our desk, it's usually pretty bad. And it usually means that, whoever is coming with a story to us has in good faith tried every other means possible to either get their story told or have something fixed internally before going public. So, um, I would say to, you know, people that do have stories and that want to tell them if that's an important story to you, then, you know, if you (laughs) pick the right journalist, that journalist, you know, can help give voice to the voiceless.
1: Yeah, great. Robin, do you want to add anything to that? I would
2: just say yes that you know on you know in a, in a perfect world going to human resources or to your immediate supervisors or higher in management would be an avenue forward but unfortunately as we've seen too often um those people are kind of co-opted by the organization itself and are not really A a path towards um, kind of redress, and so I would say that um, journalists, fortunately, have been able to bring these stories to light and affect change. And so, yes, you know, we'll keep listening and keep trying to um, get those stories out there to the extent that they can make an impact.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, great. One, one question before we let you go. You've both been. following this kind of work you've been following, whether it's the Me Too movement in various sectors, whether it's labour issues in the museum world for several years. Robin, earlier in this conversation you said you didn't know what the way forward after this might be. Are there ripple effects that you've seen in other, effect, other sectors from Me Too? Are there other places we in the museum sector should be looking to learn in order to continue to both drive this conversation forward but also bring positive action from this point forward.
1: One thing we're particularly interested in is finding places outside of the sector for people to look because museums can be a very inwardly focused profession so knowing what's going on in the rest of the world is super important.
2: Yeah and I think that is a really important question. The one way that I I really see some progress is um the extent to which um institutions are just much more aware of the importance of diversity not just for the optics of it but because the more diverse your staff your boards what you have on the wall in the case of of museums or what you have on your stages in terms of performing arts organizations the more people that are represented then um the more there are different voices get heard and you. Um, start to break up the patterns that have been um, so entrenched for so long in terms of a kind of a white patriarchal society, which, uh, you know, for better or worse, is still very much the reality in, in, in most fields. So I think um, there is some effort, you know, whether or not it's it's just because people, what people have been forced into it or not, um, there is some recognition happening that you you really need to have more kinds of people represented in your organizations. Um, in order for this kind of behavior uh, to just not no longer um, be permitted. And and there'll be more people who call it out um, while it's happening. So it it doesn't go uh, unchecked.
0: Beautiful. Zachary.
3: I would agree with Robin. And I would add that, you know, one part of this is about having diversity in your company. And then the other part is about educating your employees. Um, That's something that definitely Mm -hmm. lacks in the museum world in terms of, Uh, you know, sexual harassment and, you know, other sort of mismanagement issues that we see commonly reported. Um, I I think if Mm -hmm. you look outside of this sector, and ironically, if you're looking at the film industry or the theater industry, which have surely had their own fair share of Me Too stories, you know, there has been a real effort to hire intimacy coordinators and people that are really specifically tasked with educating actors in their field about how to interact with, you know their castmates, and that's something that we might not necessarily need in every corporate office, but surely, you know, trying to make strides in educating your employees about what is and is not appropriate, um, we could see replicated.
2: And I would I would just add to that, if I could, that I think that there is this danger of, you know, when you have something like the Weinstein, if that's sort of the worst case scenario, then. Other examples of sexual misconduct pale in comparison, but that doesn't mean they aren't also egregious. So when you have right. verbal abuse, um, that can be just as damaging to someone's career and sense of self. And I think it's really important to educate uh, people around that.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Now, both of you, I know, Zachary, you uh, you mentioned that uh, if people did want to send you a tip that your email was in your uh, Twitter bio, can you both, give us the best way for people to get in contact with you uh if they do want to follow your work find out more or send you something to follow up on sure yeah
3: i mean you can like i said it's in my twitter bio but you can reach me at zsmall93 at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter or any social media where my handle is zachary h small um yeah that's it
2: Brilliant. And Robin? Yes. And for me, it would be Pogribin is my handle and um, my email is pogribin at nytimes.com. And I welcome any and all tips, although we may not pursue all of them. I'm always glad to, to hear
0: them. Yeah, that's great. I almost great. wish you get no tips because that would mean there were no problems. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think that that's quite the situation we're in right now.
1: We can hope. Thank you both <laughs> Thank you so both. much for taking the time.
0: Oh, thanks for having us.
1: Dr. Anne-Marie Quigg is a director of Jackson Quigg Associates Limited, a UK-based company which provides freelance writing and editing services. She gained her PhD from City University London studying workplace bullying in the arts. During her career, she's worked as an actor, a regional and community arts officer, and a theater and arts center administrator and director. She has also been a committee member, trustee and chair of, and an advisor to a number of community and arts organizations throughout the UK. Anne-Marie is the author of Bullying in the Arts, Vocation, Exploitation, and Abuse of Power, and editor of The Handbook of Dealing with Workplace Bullying. Welcome, Anne-Marie.
4: Thank you so much.
1: You've been researching bullying, harassment, and abuse of power in the arts for more than 20 years. Before we dive into the topic of bullying and harassment more broadly, though, we're always interested in people's career journeys and the strange paths they take. Could you tell us a little bit about what started your interest and research into this area?
4: Yes, of course, Ed. Thank you. Um, I suppose, uh, like most people who are interested in this topic There was a combination of personal experience on my part. And at the point in my career where I was a consultant and visiting a lot of different arts organisations, I began to notice the way that behaviours were changing or seemed to have changed since my own early days. That led me to think, well, I really need to know more about this. And so I thought I would just go back to university quite late in life and embark on some research to find out more about whether this was just one-off behavior in certain organizations or whether there was a pattern. And Marie, that's really interesting,
0: the idea that this might be a pattern. Before we sort of get into patterns of bullying, I think it can be easy to imagine that certain kinds of Bullying behaviours are you know, pretty similar from one another, but is all bullying the same? Are there different kinds of bullying behaviours that people might encounter in the workplace?
4: No, all bullying isn't the same. It would be easy if that was the case. It's, it's a bit like being able to recognise a bully by maybe what they look like or where they're from or the colour of their eyes. It's just not possible. And some bullying behaviour I have found is a lot more sinister than others. In some cases, it becomes institutionalised and you can imagine how in certain organisations, for example prisons or the armed forces, there can become uh, a culture of bullying that persists despite all efforts to remove it. Then there are isolated cases where one individual in an organisation becomes a kind of a serial bully and they move from one target to the next uh, until such time as it either catches up with them or they get promoted which is not as unusual as you might think so the simple answer is there are different types of bullying some people bully alone and some people bully uh, in pairs or as part of a a team almost it's it's a very difficult area just Listening to you talk
0: about it reminds me of my own experiences of bullying and I'm feeling all kinds of um, almost uh, tension in my back, just remembering experiences that I've had in these kinds of situations. Yeah, I
1: was having the same feeling.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's so visceral just, just, you know, hearing about how these things play out. Our episode, uh, as you know, this month was inspired by... Uh, a conversation about the Me Too movement within museums and around sexual harassment. How does harassment and sexual harassment play into other kinds of
4: bullying behaviours? Well, it's interesting. Um, First of all, I'm sorry you've had a a bad experience. Um, During my research, I was very conscious that some of the people who volunteered to be interviewed would almost relive some of the stress and tension that their personal experiences had caused them. So I understand that completely. The thing about um, bullying in a way is that it's much like other sorts of abuse and researchers have linked workplace bullying with, in some cases, domestic abuse, child bullying, And there's a kind of um, a difficult relationship between those kinds of behaviors because a person who's bullied in childhood may very well grow up to be a bully themselves in the workplace. Or they may be a target in childhood and find they're a target as an adult. I think that's what makes it so complex and so very difficult to um, fathom.
1: So Anne-Marie, have you noticed any... uh any difference since the Me Too movement has started around the dynamics of workplace bullying and and the conversations that people are having?
4: Yes, I have. Um, And that in itself is very encouraging. Uh, Sometimes bullying and sexual harassment go hand in hand. Um, One is the flip side of the other, if you like. And what I've noticed is that there's much more awareness in workplaces today than there used to be. And younger people today are much less tolerant of what they perceive as uh, sexual harassment than it might have been the case more than 20 years ago.
1: Well, that's a hopeful thing for 2020. Anne-Marie, can you, can you talk a little bit about um, what you've discovered about how bullying and harassment impact a work environment? Like, what is, what is it like to work somewhere where there is an active bullying situation going on?
4: It's often described by people who I've interviewed and people who have reported their own experiences to me. That it's a toxic work environment. Uh, and I'm not I'm not overemphasizing that. Uh, I think even people who are not targeted themselves, but who witness bullying, the bullying of others, can begin to feel the same way as the target does, can begin to dread going to work in the morning, can develop all sorts of physical and psychological symptoms of stress and the whole work environment can become just a place where no one wants to be as long as the bully's in it.
0: Yeah I've noticed you've used the term accessories to bullying in your book and I imagine that's partly what you're talking about. Can you explain that term and what someone should do if they do witness or become aware of bullying and harassment within their institution?
4: Yes, of course. Um, there are a lot of terms used to talk about people who uh, understand what's going on bystanders, witnesses, etc. Accessories to me is at another level because that is someone who perhaps has the capacity or the authority, if you like to intervene and stop the bullying happening but does nothing and that's that's a more serious it can be unfortunate for instance if you witness uh, bullying of a colleague and feel that you're powerless to do anything and there are cases where that is absolutely true but if you know you could do something more helpful and you choose not to do it then you are an accessory to the bullying itself
1: yeah i think that's important to note that there are many more people involved than just the people who are bullying or being bullied. And that idea of stopping the tide, as it were, um, is an important one for everybody to think about.
4: I think also that um, an organization can help itself to try and prevent bullying in the first place if it puts in place the right kind of policies and has the right kind of guidelines for action. Um, when I when I write about what to do, I often have to frame it in terms of if you're, a, say, a board member at the top of an organisation or you're a chief executive or you're um, uh, a senior manager, but under other managers, uh, it depends on your role in that organisation how much power and authority you might have. But uh, in order for an organisation to try and make it Clear that bullying won't be tolerated. They have to state that in their policies and guidelines, make sure everyone knows it, and implement the solutions that they arrive at if it occurs when they're there.
1: Yeah, that's great, and I think getting at that idea of what can organizations do structurally is super important. Um, One question I have for you, Anne-Marie, is, Um, Do you think that bullying and harassment manifest similarly across all sectors? Or are there specific conditions about the arts and cultural sectors that make them or that make workplace bullying and harassment different in these kinds of organizations than in, say, the corporate world or elsewhere?
4: Yes, I think, um, and I mentioned vocation in the um, uh, subtitle of my first book. People in the arts, creative people, are very, very committed to what they do. Uh, whether they're they're an actor or a technician or a writer or a museum curator. Uh, They love what they do. Um, Very few of us go into the arts to make money, I can tell you that. Um, And this gives an extra sort of sensitivity, I think, when behaviour is abusive. I think it makes people feel um, more overwhelmed than if they're just... For example, in a 9-5 to job that uh, is just their way of, of um, uh, being able to feed themselves and their families. So I think there is a difference. For instance, you might be interested to know that another area that suffers a lot of bullying is, are the caring professions, hospitals, junior doctors, nurses. Uh, there's been quite a lot of research in that area in the UK and I pretty much imagine it must be the same elsewhere it it's an interesting point i also wonder um something i've been thinking
0: about a lot as thinking through this topic is the size of different sectors so you know in the museum sector i've i've i come from a regional town in australia and there really were not very many jobs to for people who wanted to work in that sector and so it it seems like it's harder to be able to leave, that there's less mobility without truly um, taking a leap. Do you think that also plays a factor? That it's not merely about sort of this vocational, this passion for, for a job, but also the, the kinds of relationships that drive the sector?
4: Yes, I, I'm sure that must be the case. I know um, Arts organisations come in different shapes and sizes, of course. Some are very large, uh, some are tiny, virtually, you know, maybe half a dozen people. Um, And that does mean that mobility can be restricted. What I've also found is that for for people working in the arts and cultural organisations, if they are freelance, so they're working short term contracts, then they are more likely to put up with bullying because they make a decision. Okay. This is going to happen for six months and then I'm not going to be here anymore and I'll never work for this director or organization again. So I find that freelancers tend to try and stick it out rather than those in a full-time position because those in a full-time position can't see any way forward very often. Yeah. That makes a lot
0: of sense. If I, I, I really take to heart what you were saying before, that part of you know preventing this and how, how we make a healthier sector is that organisations need to have policies and procedures in place to try and make a healthier workplace right up front. But these situations do seem to come down often to individuals or at least that's uh, individuals become players, at least at the start. Are there signs that an employer can be on the lookout for to recognise a potential bullying situation to help um, protect their staff and make sure that the work environment is a positive one?
4: Well, I think training plays a big part here because um, I have worked for Equity here in the UK, which is the Actors' Union. And they, first of all, produced a policy now they've got a part time employee dealing with cases of bullying among their members. And they, when I work with them and train them, they get everybody involved. So it's not just fellow actors, it might be anyone who's a member, anyone who manages members. And that means that it's, it's, their policy is going to be implemented and understood across the board. So it shouldn't fall to just one manager. To sort out a situation if they're if they're able to do so without having to refer it upwards then obviously that's that's a bonus all round but very often um, bullies when accused uh, will make counterclaims. and that means that they might go to a senior manager and accuse the person they've been targeting of bullying them And that's when it all gets very complicated and very difficult to sort out.
1: To follow up on that a little bit, Anne-Marie, if, um, do you have any particular advice for someone if they are currently being bullied by a colleague or a superior in their museum right now? Like what would be the steps that you would recommend someone take?
4: Well, I know I keep saying this is difficult, but it is. And this is the reason why. Sometimes people who feel they're being bullied uh, make an approach to the person they believe is responsible and try and discuss it with them once or twice I gather it has worked but for the most part it isn't really a solution and once accused the bully will will go into denial the next difficulty is if you are being bullied by your line manager then the only place you can go is over their head and that might make it difficult for the person at the top of the organization that you approach because they might have appointed your line manager in the first place in a sense this is why if you look at some of the cases in museums particularly of sexual harassment when a ceo is responsible the person at the top of the tree as it were then the board of that organization can be very loath to take any action at all and very often the person who makes the complaint is moved on. Or in one case I know from not very long ago, is sacked.
1: Ugh. Yeah. So, um, so if it's not your CEO, let's say, what would you, what would be the first step that you would recommend to somebody?
4: Well, um, you have to all, uh, sorry, you have to, first of all, keep a dossier. I know that's going to sound strange, but very often ah. bullying is, is a series of quite small Um, occurrences Uh, and what I describe as the Jekyll and Hyde effect comes into play here somebody could be really nice to you one day helpful uh, making suggestions that are positive and in a slightly different situation they suddenly turn on you and accuse you of incompetence or uh, by which I mean falsely accuse you of incompetence it's that kind of um, change of, of attitude and that person can be very difficult to get around and very difficult to report because bullies are often very charming to the people who hold the power in an organization and not so charming to the person they're targeting. So first of all I would say collect the evidence better so if you have witnesses to what's going on between you and the perpetrator. When you feel you have a a body of evidence that is sufficient you should consider where the best approach would be made and sometimes that is a senior manager or another manager and sometimes it, it is the board of directors or equivalent uh, it's not clear cut um, most people end up I'm have to say leaving their organization because they can't find a resolution that that will give them back their sanity as they've often said to me
1: yeah that's a terrible situation to be in.
4: I should also say, um, where there's trade union involvement, generally the success rate, at least in the UK, is much better. Because if you have someone outside of your organisation who's supporting you and to whom you can deliver the evidence, they are empowered to come and talk to management and try to seek a a solution to, to the issue. I think that
0: that's one of the one of the challenges, I mean, just just listening to you talk, is that there aren't easy solutions and that there aren't clear-cut ways forward. And yet, if we're thinking about, in the museum sector, how we make a healthier sector and how we prevent situations like this from happening, then we do have to look to, you know, do we work with outside organisations? How do we make sure that Um, individuals are not bearing the brunt of what's happening. Are there any success stories? Before we leave you, have you seen success stories where um, an environment that was a toxic work environment has actually been able to be brought around and and made healthier and what contributed to that?
4: Well, there is one example I can think of. Uh, One of the very large theatres here, theatre houses, I should say, with buildings in um, London as well as elsewhere. They had a problem backstage. They had a, um, an older man who'd been with them for a long time, who was known to bully the younger technicians. And he, um, I think there were several complaints made against him. So he was, he was given a period of leave of absence. But management found it very hard to just get rid of him because he'd been with them for such a long time. And uh, yet their their team performed so brilliantly when he was not at work that they realised they had to find some kind of permanent solution. Um, I came across this case because the director of the department came to one of my lectures, which I was surprised about, sat among the students and then told me what was going on. he went to his union but in this case of course the union represented both the person accused of bullying and the young people who said they were targets of bullying so it was in the end with the help of the union and getting them all to get together um both uh, organizations both both the bully and and uh, the targets were reconciled um, The only thing is that as it was quite close to the bully's retirement age, he decided to take early retirement and the technical director was very pleased about this, but rather um, rather annoyed that he was given a very nice um, financial gift. Still, they did sort the situation out and the team went back to being one of the best there is. Wow. It's a tough and complex situation.
0: Emery if people want to find out more about your work if they want to read your book or keep in contact with the kind of research you've been doing what's the best way for them to do so?
4: Well uh, email is best for me if they want to make sort of immediate contact. Um, I don't hear so well so um, using the telephone can be tricky but I think my email address is in the books or on, on our website um, Ed mentioned Jackson Quigg Associates Limited and if you if you google that you'll find us and I'm very happy to hear from anyone who wants to share an experience or ask some more questions. Emory, that's lovely thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Yes thank you very much Anne-Marie.
4: It's been a pleasure and thank you for taking an interest and I hope your listeners also find it was useful to them.
1: Thank you, Robin, Zachary, and Anne-Marie, for sharing your work and perspectives with us. This is not an easy topic, but it's an important one for us to talk about openly and not just behind closed doors.
0: Yeah, as I mentioned briefly when we were talking to Anne-Marie, I have definitely experienced workplace bullying in a job, fortunately prior to joining museums, but I was surprised by how clearly some of those feelings of anxiousness, of anxiety came back to me in this conversation. I was quite young at the time that it happened and I don't think I even realized exactly what was happening, including the gaslighting, the bullying, the the things that brought my sense of reality into question. And the effects of bullying and harassment, sexual or otherwise, can be devastating, which is why it's so important that, as the PMA staff put it so clearly, abusers aren't enabled, employees feel safe reporting abuse, and no one feels retaliation for coming forward. Museums can and should do better.
1: Yeah, let's say that again. Museums can and should do better.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully these conversations are one of the ways that that is going to happen, that this won't just be one conversation, but it will be the start of museums addressing this up front, openly, with transparency and with policies that they actually utilise.
1: Yeah. And what a way to kick off 2020, huh? (laughs) That's kind of a powerful episode.
0: Uh, Yeah. Uh, I'd love to imagine that maybe the rest of the year will be filled with lighthearted things and, you know, puppies and kittens and flowers. But I have a feeling that 2020 is going to be a pretty intense year and that our work is not going to get any easier.
1: No, I, I agree with that. My my big hope is that we'll have more opportunities to report on things that are actually happening and and changes that are happening, rather than just talking about things that are issues that need to be resolved.
0: Yeah, I think that that would be a, a nice aim. That said, I I do feel that you know this. I think I said this actually in the last episode of of twenty nineteen that. My personal practice has been shifting in response to these conversations. So even just having the conversations, just having the discussions and making them public and building a sense of momentum, I think does equip people to do things differently.
1: I agree. It's much better to be having these conversations. It's it's a first step, but you got to take the first step before you can take the second.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 2020, is there anything you're... uh, excited about or looking forward to, Ed, rather than finishing on this somewhat grim note of uh, work's going to be hard. Life is life is a little bit tough right now. Uh, I'm actually kind
1: of excited to engage with it. it yeah, it's going to be hard, but I think the conversations you and I have been having have been, you know, really nourishing. I think the the stuff we have lined up super secret things for the future <laughs> yes. are going to be very exciting. And, uh, you know, 2020, let's do it.
0: i like it 2020 let's do it let's let's rock on in and have that as our uh you know minor mantra i think for the uh for the rest of the year
1: hell yeah (laughs) okay so on that note uh we've popped links to much of what we spoke about today in the show notes which you can find at museopunks.org along with transcripts of this and previous episodes
0: Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher.
1: See you next time.